Are you tired of being sheep? Well, so is he. Get a friend, get informed, and get involved. It's We Are Not Cattle Radio. Good morning and welcome to We Are Not Cattle Radio. I am your host, Jake Counts, navigating you through this crazy world that we live in. It is Sunday, March 2nd, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you so much for joining me for today's show. I decided I would take it back to the old school when I had some stuff come up last Thursday and wasn't able to make the show. So I did want to at least give everybody something nice to think about this weekend. So... Here I am, and here is the old format, so thank you so much for tuning in this morning and sharing the message of knowledge, truth, and inspiration for other individuals so that we can somehow remove ourselves from this moral dilemma that we find ourselves in. And that's what um, the topic for the show is today, morality in America. Where is it going? Now, I have some theories of my own, but we'll get into those here in a bit. But let's first define the term morality. Now, when we look at modern English, morality is typically described as principles concerning the distinction between right and wrong or good and bad behavior. Now, if we want to look at the (coughs) etymological origins of the word, we can look at the word Latin word moralis, which means proper behavior in a person in society, which literally means pertaining to manners, and that was coined by Cicero, and to translate from the Greek ethos, or ethics, and from Latin mos, which is one's disposition. Plural is more customs, manners, and moral. So, If we look at the etymological term and the origin of this word, it truly does mean to have morals in a society. Not to use the term to define itself, but that's what it means. So when we have an immoral culture, which I think that we could argue that the United States in general is pretty amoral, so... I don't want to say that they're immoral. I just want to say that they're amoral. They don't have any predetermined right and wrong in their their makeup and in their schooling so that they will go and unfortunately commit wrongs throughout the entire day. And it does really have a negative impact on society. Whether you're talking about a butterfly effect or you're talking about a legitimate effect that, that an individual has interacting with somebody else, in a specific situation, we do run into a conundrum now of people making excuses for having amoral or immoral behavior. Amoral or immoral behavior is very easy. It's obviously a lot easier to to do something amoral or immoral than it is to do the, the proper thing. That's why Hard work is always deemed that. It's hard work because you have to put the time and effort into getting the maximized outcome from your endeavor. There's a reason that shortcuts are called shortcuts. So we're going to look at this all in a nice big bow. And we're going to get into here in a little bit how the proliferation of television and entertainment technology may be contributing to this amoral and immoral behavior that we see here in the United States. Now, most people will probably sit there and think to themselves, well, I don't think of any amoral, immoral behavior. Well, I could think of a few right off the top of my head. Now, let's see if we can run through Mark Passio's definition of right and wrong, and then we'll see if you come up with some yourself. Because we do have a couple of glaring wrongs that the United States as a nation and as a culture allow to happen. And when I say that term, allow, that is exactly what I mean. We are allowing these things to happen. 
the individual is not stepping up to the plate. The multiple individuals making up the collective is not stepping up to the plate either. So societally, we're all taking a back seat, observing the decline of a once great and prosperous nation. Now, I'm not a nationalist by any sense of the imagination, so take that with a grain of salt. But let's just say that as a group of individuals living on this landmass, defined by politicians with their imaginally, excuse me, imaginary lines that they've drawn for voting blocks, we have lost culture. We have lost morality. We have lost the physical distinction between right and wrong. So now I'm going to play a clip from Mark Passio's Natural Law Seminar. You guys have heard me reference this a couple of times. It is almost essential at this point if you're trying to understand the nature of the challenges that we face and if you're trying to get to the bottom of this, where does all this come from? Where does, why, do we always, why do we all of a sudden in the last 15 years, why does it seem like that everybody's in a bad mood or that everybody's got an ax to grind or that everybody's just looking out for themselves? Well, a lot of this lecture will explain that to you, and it will put it into perspective so that you can make the change for yourself. Remember, the only reason that society is in this predicament is that we look at ourselves, and we don't hold ourselves responsible for the issues that are going on in today's society. It's always somebody else's problem. Well, somebody will fix that. Well, somebody will write a law to fix that. Well, somebody else will do it. And once we get over this idea that somebody else is going to fix our problems, especially in this country, then we'll actually be able to start making some change. And that's what it's about. It's about enlightening the mind first, causing action on the, at the very end, but enlightening the mind, understanding the problem, and then causing action, and then executing the action that we have already deemed to be worthy of the response. So here is Mark Passio's natural law portion, and it's a couple of minutes, but this really does break down the idea of right and wrong so that when we go out into the world, we can understand what a right is and what a wrong is. And I know it seems very elementary, but we all need to get on the same page from the grammar perspective before we can even move forward and start to make change. So here you go. If you don't know that there is an objective, meaning in nature difference, okay, between right and wrong, that is a satanic belief system. Morality, it's not right versus left. It's about right versus wrong. This whole left-right paradigm, the people, oh, you fall in with, with the left, with the Democrats or the right, the Republicans has nothing to do with any of that. It's a false paradigm. The, the thing that all of that's a distraction for not getting you to pay attention to and understand is the difference, the real, true, and objective difference between right and wrong. And we're going to explore what that is, because it can be known. It can be known, and most people will be shocked and horrified to understand the real differences between right and wrong, because they'll have to look into themselves and recognize in many ways that they are cooperating with wrong and that they don't really truly know the difference between right and wrong. When you tell people this, I'm telling you, I told this to somebody in a bar once, which was a big mistake of even trying to bring up this, this discussion in that environment. But occasionally I even, you know, make asinine mistakes like that and think I'm going to be talking to even a semi-conscious being. <laughs> when you're talking to a block, okay? So I said, you understand what actual morality is, is true common sense. We're going to look at that term common sense and explore what it really means. And she said, so what you're saying is if I think that there's no really objective right and wrong, that I don't have common sense. And I said, yes, that's what it, no, I said, that's not what I think. I'm trying to explain to you that's what it means by definition, not by what I think. The definition of common sense is to truly know the difference between right and wrong. And I said, 
because I say that you are, are not fully in that state of awareness, don't even take it personally because billions of people on the earth are in that same state of awareness. You're not special and it's not a personal attack against you. And I thought this person was going to throw a glass at me. I literally got so enraged because she's associating the concept of common sense with that you are functional and can adequately perform the daily activities of living. And that's not what I'm talking about as common sense, okay? Having common sense about, oh, uh, I can eat, prepare my meals and eat for myself and wash my own clothes and, you know, go to work. That's not what I'm talking about as common sense. That's your every man's definition or connotation of common sense. We're going to talk about what common sense really is, okay? A deep understanding of morality, which are the principles concerning the distinction between right and wrong behavior, lies at the very heart of natural law. This is the essence of it, folks, right here. And here's the difference between right and wrong, in a nutshell, about as simply as I am capable of describing it. All right? Now, we use the words correct or to, right to mean correct and moral. When you say, okay, what's five plus five? It's 10. You're right, meaning you are correct. That is true. That is the correct answer. That is right, okay? And then we say, was, was uh, stealing from, was stealing that money from Jim, was that, was that right to mean, was it a moral behavior? So now, wh why would we use the same word, again, like the ancient Romans used the same word, book and free, okay, the, the, those two different concepts were represented by the same word, liber, right? And there's a reason, because reading will put you on the path to true freedom if you read the right books, okay? Why would in English, in the English language, we not really, we have other words to mean the same concepts, but the word right means two things simultaneously. It means both correct and it means moral. There's a reason, because they mean the same thing. Correct is moral. Correct meaning that is, it is in alignment with that which is true, means literally by definition, if it is true, then it is moral. The more you are following something that is false, that is not based in truth, the more you are going down the path of immorality, of wrongdoing. So we have to come to know what is true regarding right and wrong if we are going to be able to correctly, with wisdom, choose between these two modalities of behavior. So right, again, it means both correct which is based in truth and moral, which means that the action, if taken, if acted upon, is in harmony with natural law. Actions based in it do not result in harm to other sentient beings. That's the definition of right. Now look at how simple that, that definition is. And, and think about it for a moment. We're talking about what is a right, meaning what do you have a right to do? And what you have a right to do is no different than what I have a right to do. What I'm telling you here is every single human being on this planet has the exact same rights. Not one person has one more right than another being. Not one person has one less right than another being. To think that anybody has more or less rights anywhere on the earth at any time in history is a fallacy. It is a lie. It is a deception. It is wrong. It is not correct. It is not based in truth. Rights are universal and the exact same for every human being. Blanket statement, absolute truth. Let the ego chew on it and deal with it. And again, the ego will have a hard time with this in many cases, with many people. They'll hear that and they'll want to throw a glass at me. So look at the definition again. A right, 
So when you, when you make a definition, right, this is a noun, right? Noun's a person, place, or thing in the English language. We're talking about a noun here. You look up the word right, it's a noun, meaning a right. A right that we have to enact, to take, is an action. You have to start a definition with the same type of word. You're defining a noun, you've got to give it a noun to start the definition. A right is an action. Most people will never even be able to tell you that. To say, can you define what a right is to me? They will not give you this noun. A right is an action. So is a wrong an action. A right is an action that if you take it, it does not cause harm to other sentient beings. That's the simple and easiest definition that anybody can give for what a right is. And I guarantee you, you go and engage as many people as you want on the street. I have not asked this question and had anybody raise, ever raise their hand or even contact me later and say, you go up to somebody on the street and ask them if they can define what a right is. Nobody can give you the correct definition for what a right is. Now, if you don't know what the definition of a right is, you certainly don't know whether you're choosing accurately between a right and a wrong, between right and wrong behavior. You can't. It's not possible. So. So many people believe that they're allowed and they can do actions with no consequence that actually aren't in alignment with natural law because the taking of those actions do result in harm. And they don't really even understand that. So let's look at what a wrong is. We're going to deeply look into what a wrong is. We're going to focus on what wrongs are. Because in reality, to even start this, right, what have we based this definition on? actions based in it do not result in harm, right? That's the negative of another definition. Well, it's the negative of this definition. So you can only actually define a right by knowing what a wrong is. A right technically cannot be defined outside of the negative. A right can only be defined apophatically, meaning understanding what a wrong is and then stating that it is anything that falls outside of the parameters of wrongdoing. Okay, we're going to get to what those parameters are. All right? So, I'm sorry, uh, I, I want to focus on wrong for a moment. Okay? Wrong, again, we say this, what's five plus five? Nine. Wrong, it's not true. Incorrect. Incorrect answer. It's not based in truth. We use the term wrong to mean both incorrect and immoral. Well, that was wrong what you did to that person by hitting him for no reason. You didn't have the right to do that. Immoral means in opposition to natural law. Because actions that are based in it result in harm to other sentient beings. That's the simple definition of a wrong. Now, we can go, we can go deeper into the definition of what a wrong is and look at different types of wrongs, which is what I'm going to do in a moment. So this is the concept that is referred to as apophatic inquiry. Very, very critical to understand concept. And you have to apply this concept. What this essentially is, is it's a filtration process. This is the process of the, the, the middle process in the trivium. Okay? It's, it's weeding through the inconsistencies and saying, well, is this inconsistent? Is this inconsistent? Is that not true? And you're, you're, you're setting those behaviors aside and you're saying, here's the behaviors that are wrong. Don't engage in those behaviors. It's negative. It's a negative process. It's a destructive process. You're taking away from the body of everything that can be done and you're saying, I'm pulling all of these out through a weeding down process and saying, these are all inconsistent with truth. It's called apothesis apophatic inquiry, and that is to be delineated from what's known as cataphatic inquiry. Cataphatic inquiry means you're reasoning in the affirmative, and you're not trying to weed down through a, um, uh, a process of elimination to get to the truth. Okay? So cataph cataphasis or cataphatic inquiry would be equivalent to inductive reasoning, whereas apophatic inquiry or apothesis would be akin to deductive reasoning, all right? Rights are most easily understood when they are considered through apophatic inquiry or what is known as the process of apothesis. 
This process helps us to understand what a right actually is by understanding actions that are, which actions are not rights because they cause harm to others. They're the cause of harm. So there you go. So there's a lot more to that, but I had to cut it there because in the, I guess, in the world that we live in, you can take in too much information at once, but that will give you a very good working definition of what a right and what a wrong is. So in my understanding, what I have found is that a wrong is usually committed by some sort of theft. And that's all it can be. A wrong is um, theft of a person's, let's say that if you have, um, if I'm going to go and punch somebody, I am taking away their right to security or I am taking their right to have, you know, physical, natural, um, what's the best way to describe this? To have physical, natural homogeneity because they're just moving throughout their day-to-day -day life. They have none, done nothing to engage me, nothing like that. So I go and I take something from them. Also, uh, a theft of um, money, a theft of consciousness. And that's what we're going to talk about now. The theft of consciousness and why this is so important. So when I was putting this show together, I was thinking about what are the big challenges that we face Obviously, we face the singularity from a technology perspective. So let's talk about how that is going to really play into our day-to-day -day lives moving forward. Already, we have basically seen a generation raised on television. And that's a interesting, I guess, microcosm of, of the United States culture. Because our culture really is television. There is, no, um, there is no European culture here. There is no ancient Greek culture. There is no um, Hispanic culture. It's the culture of television. So when we start to look at the United States as a, as a whole, I would think that the culture of television is something that we should really look at. And maybe this is one of the determining factors why we're running into a moral or amoral or immoral behavior. Because I think most of you can agree that when you interact with people on a day-to-day -day basis, there are people that are um, a little bit slower to interact. There are people that are more aggressive, and there are people that are just more combative. Now, I'm going to raise two questions. Number one, is that the programming that they're watching on television, or is it the actual physical effects of television itself? So what we're going to do for the balance of this next 20 minutes, then I'm going to be joined by one of my, um, one of my old friends to talk about the future of cryptocurrencies because it's, it's a fascinating conversation to talk about what happened to Mt. Gox, who has uh, since filed for bankruptcy. But we'll get into that here in a bit. So television, where did all of this programming come from? And why is it so destructive? Well, unfortunately, as human beings, we enjoy watching pretty much extreme things. If you showed a, I guess, a sitcom of just the average day-to-day -day family trying to, trying to work two jobs in order to keep the house afloat and having no comedy involved in it whatsoever, having a stay-at-home mom or even a mom that works in order to pay the bills to send the children off to daycare, that really wouldn't make for an enlightening show. So we have to take things to the extreme in order for us to suspend our reality or suspend disbelief for a little while and understand what we are going into, and that is an entertainment level of behavior. So... When you are put in front of the television, whether you know it or not, you are actually lowering your brain activity because you are putting your body at a state of rest or a state of ease. Now, what happens with your mind is a completely different thing altogether, and I'm going to get into that with some documentation here. Describing the challenges that are faced with high volumes of television watching or television viewing. Now, 
unfortunately for us, we live in a society that perpetuates television viewing. And the majority of Americans spend the most time watching TV more than any other person or persons on the planet. And there was a study done that said that if a person lives 75 years in America, they will spend nine years of their life watching television. I want you to think about that for a moment. You spent almost one-tenth, actually a little bit more than a tenth of your life, just watching. Just watching little flickers, just watching screens change. That's all that television is. It's just scene changes and screens. And, and yes, there are, some, there are some programs that will actually be enlightening and things like that. And, and I don't knock people for watching television, but understand what you're putting yourself through physically and mentally when you're doing these things. And then you can make a conscious decision of whether you want to, what my friends and I like to call, dive into the matrix. Once again, I am not poking fun or trying to belittle anybody that watches television. It's kind of like if if somebody wanted to go use a, a non-state-sponsored drug. I have no qualms with you putting whatever in your body that you wish to put in there because it's your property. Now, I will tell you that some of the harmful effects are X, Y, and Z, but you do what you want. So at the end of the day, it is your conscious decision to do these things. I'm just trying to give you the information so that you can make better decisions in your life and hopefully we'll see some of the negative effects of television, I guess poisoning, if you will, go away. So let's get into a Daily Mail article. And this talked about the effects on children. This is a very common theme for people that grew up in my generation. I'm 35 years old, so a lot of us grew up watching television. And the generation even before mine grew up watching television as well. The television was, quote-unquote, the babysitter. But now we've run into a situation where we're starting to understand that maybe putting a child in front of the television for... Nine, ten hours a day in order to quote-unquote babysit your kid, it's not going to be the best use of their time, nor is it going to be the best use of their mental acumen, and we might be, maybe, causing some long-term damage to their psyche that can't be repaired. And that's a big issue. So let's talk about this. This is a, a Daily Mail article entitled, Children Watch TV, <laughs> Children Who Watch TV have damaged brain structures. Now, here are some excerpts from the article. They highlighted the fact that learning a musical instrument, for example, programs that we watch on TV don't necessarily advance to a higher level or speed up and vary. So what they're saying is that when a child watches a television program, television programs are typically laid out in very similar formats. They have, um, they have scene changes that typically won't go any past any certain parameters because if you make the scene changes too quick, then the mind can't follow and it just becomes scrambled. So you never really progress when you're talking about television as far as an intellectual standpoint and what you're doing to stimulate your brain. It's all basically at the same tone or the same speed. So when you're talking about something like learning a musical instrument, there are always more and more challenging um, pieces of music to learn. There's more and more challenging chords to learn so that you're always stimulating that portion of your brain. And then here it goes on to say, when this type of increase in level of experiences does not occur <clears throat> with increasing experience, the level of effect on the cognitive function is diminished. Now, moving on in the article, it says, the author said that the impact of watching television on the structural development of the brain has never before been investigated. But in conclusion, television viewing is directly or indirectly associated with neurocognitive development in children. And at least some of the observed associations not beneficial and the guardians should be considered when these effects and when these children view television for long periods of time. The, the children in the study were split almost evenly between boys and girls and the finding was published in the Journal of Cerebral Cortex, highlighted in the associ association between television viewing and changes in the brain, but did not prove that TV caused the definite changes. Scientists also 
cannot be sure that missing out on activities such as reading, playing sports, or interacting with friends or family as a result of TV could be blamed for their studies either. So the study basically says that, yes, there are some changes, but we can't make a direct correlation to television as the determining cause for why these kids have slowed their brain function. Now, after that, I started doing a little bit more digging, and I decided that I was going to try to find some case studies, scientific case studies, that possibly disproved that idea. Now, understand that television is a humongous industry with a lot of money going through it. So we have to understand that there are going to be some skewed studies. And of course, there's going to be skewed studies on the other end trying to create a generated outcome or a pre-generated outcome. And um, much like you have with GMO crops where they're trying to create predetermined outcomes to substantiate their claims, whether it's on one side of the aisle or the other, that their GMOs are damaging or that GMOs are completely safe. If you go in with a predetermined outcome that you're trying to prove, typically you can skew the study results in order to generate the type of results that you're looking to get out of that specific study. So I found this article that was very well put together, and not just because it supports my my theory and one of the topics that I wanted to cover, but because it is based on scientific studies. So, and they actually did their own study. And this is by the Scientific American, and it was published on February 23rd of 2002. And it's entitled, Television Addiction is No Mere Metaphor. Now, I'm going to be reading um, a lot of these excerpts, but it was just a jam-packed article, so it's they're absolutely everywhere. So... It goes on to say, the study of people's reactions to TV, researchers have undertaken laboratory experiments in which they have monitored the brainwaves using electro or EEG technology. Um, I would have butchered that name. Skin resistance and heart rate for people watching TV. They track their behavior, emotional, and normal course of life, and as opposed to the artificial conditions in the lab. So in the lab, they actually hook these people up and make them watch television. And by using the experimental experience sampling method, that's how they got their results. So the participants carried a beeper, and when they signaled to them six or eight times a day at random, over a period of time, as soon as they heard the beep, they wrote down exactly what they were doing, how they were feeling, and used a standardized scorecard. As one might expect, the people who were watching TV when beeped reported they were feeling relaxed and passive. The EEG studies similar, similarly show that less mental stimulation and as measured alpha brainwave productivity during the viewing rather than during reading. So during television viewing, obviously, your alpha brainwaves will drop, and that is where you create your reasoning and all of your other... Um, fight or flight refluxes and stuff like that. So it's kind of important. Anyway, moving on, it says, as one might expect, oh, excuse me, I already covered that. What is more surprising is that the sense of relaxation ends as soon as the television set is turned off and the feeling of passively lowered alertness still continues. Survey participants commonly reflect that television is somehow or another absorbed or sucked the energy out of their life, leaving them depleted. They say that it is more difficulty concentrating after viewing than before, in contrast where they rarely indicate such things after reading. After playing sports or engaging in hobbies, people report improvements in mood. After watching TV, people's moods are about the same or worse than before. Now, the reason that this is so dramatic is that understand that when you're interacting with people on a day-to-day -day basis, I would say a small majority of those people watch a lot of television. And they might have just got done watching television when you see them in a grocery store. That's why people look frazzled. That's why people look uh, impatient. That's why people get overly aggressive for no apparent reason. Because as soon as you leave the television, your comfort level 
is gone. That sense of satisfaction that you had by watching television is now gone. So now you're thrust out into the world and you're probably feeling a little bit on edge so that just makes your day-to-day life a little bit more stressful. But then when you go back to the television, you can lower your you can lower your brain waves again and you can create that relaxed sensation. So you see how this is becoming almost an addictive cycle and the only way that you can reverse it is by minimizing your television time and understand that this is what is happening to your body whether you believe it or not. It is happening physiologically. You don't get to debate this. This is truth. This is fact. Within the moments of sitting or laying down and pushing the power button, the, the viewers reported being more relaxed. Because the relaxation occurs quickly, people are conditioned to associate viewing with rest or lack of tension. The association is positively excuse me, is positively reinforced because viewers remain relaxed throughout the viewing and it's negatively reinforced due to the stress and dystopic ruination that occurs once the screen goes blank again. Experience sampling method permits us to look closely at the even moderate domain of people living everyday life, working, eating, reading, talking to friends, playing sports, and so on, and wondered whether the heavy viewers might experience life differently than the light viewers do. So I'm going to actually pull up one of my friends here because I want to get his take on this. We are going to talk about Bitcoin, but I'm going to see if I can go ahead and get him on. So excuse my little momentary lapse here, everybody. I've got to get all of the correct things in place. But we're looking to expand consciousness here. And if we're going to expand consciousness, we're going to have to migrate away from the television. And unfortunately, that's just going to have to happen. So let me see if I can pull him up here really quick. Jake, do I have you? Yeah, I think so. Awesome. Well, hey, I don't know if you've uh, been listening, but what I'm what I'm covering right now is the the negative effects of television on um, on mental capability and mental clarity. And so what I found was an article here. And I'll just recap this last portion before I continue on with some of the other pertinent parts of it. But I did want to get your take on it because this is something that you and I have talked about before. Sure. So um, here's what it says. And it's talked about um, in the – I'm going to read you the last two paragraphs. So forgive me, everybody. We're just going to recap. And um, let's see. The survey participants commonly reflect that television somehow or another absorbed or sucked the energy out of – their life, leaving them depleted. They also say that it was more difficult concentrating than before they started watching. In contrast, they rarely indicate that such difficulty after reading. After playing sports or engaging in hobbies, people report improvements in mood. And after watching TV, people's moods are about the same or worse than before. And it goes on to say, within moments of sitting or lying down and pushing the power button, reviewers or viewers report feeling more relaxed. Because the relaxation occurs quickly, People are conditioned to associate the viewing with rest or lack of tension. The association is positively reinforced by viewing, by the viewers remaining relaxed throughout viewing and is negatively reinforced due to the stress and the dystrophic ruination that occurs once the screen goes blank again. And it continues on to ask the question, we wonder if people who are heavy users of television experience life differently than other users are. It says, do they dislike being with people? Are they more alienated from work? And we found that it leaped right off the page. Heavy viewers report feeling significantly more anxious and less happy than light viewers do in instructed situations, and such, uh, such as doing nothing, daydreaming, or waiting in line. The difference widens as the viewers are left alone. So, and it keeps going on to talk about how the, the difference between people that will be captivated by television for hours at a time as opposed to people that will typically watch television in moderation. And the reason I'm getting into this was the justification of the amoral society or the immoral society that we are creating here in America. And I think a lot of it has to do with not only the programs that are on television, but I think it's the, the television itself creating a false paradigm where we, we believe that it's, it's okay to act in ways that we see on TV. We believe that it's okay to, 
to not interact with um with our fellow humans and and try to you know build a build a dialogue between two people in the same physical space. So I know that was a lot to take in, but what what are your thoughts on that article? And then we can get into um we can get into the Bitcoin stuff. Okay, great. Yeah, I I feel like TV is one of the most addictive things out there. I think it's it's almost as addictive as uh, caffeine or nicotine or or anything else. And a certain negative effect that it has on people is that people just sort of drink it in and they and they don't really think critically while they have it on. Mm-hmm. They're not really engaging their consciousness on uh, on a deeper level. It's mm-hmm. it's just it's just I, I throw it on and I zone out and I'm brain dead and, and being relaxed is fine. I, I you know, you need periods of of unwinding and 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 getting some of the stresses off of yourself, but stress also is something that motivates. Stress right. is something that keeps you progressing and evolving. And TV, it, it, you know, it can depend on what you're watching. Uh, there certainly <laughs> has, are things, you know, if you were watching PBS the other night and they had on uh, Chick Corea and, uh, you know, it, something that stimulates you on a deeper level than a lot of the things, but I think people just have, like you go to a bar or you go to a bank or a business, people have on, you know, if it's a bank, it, maybe they have on Fox News or CNN mm-hmm. all the time in the background, or if you're at a bar, there's ESPN on all the time, and it's it helps create a relaxed atmosphere, but it also loses people. It loses, people get lost in it, and they and like it, like the article states. It's so true. You just do not engage others because you have something else. You have an excuse not to engage others because I'm involved in this right now. So don't be rude and disturb me. There you go. And then what what's even interesting? The the actual study goes on to talk about how um, the the frame rate and what it does is the the operant conditioning that it has because the flame uh, the frame rate and the flicker are are distracting and disorienting to your consciousness. You will look at the television no matter where it's positioned in the room because it draws your attention because it's something flashing and that's just an instinctive, um, an instinctive, I guess, trigger. Like a <laughs> bug trap. Right, exactly. It's it's our reptilian reptilian brain that just triggers that. Hey, I just saw something stimulating. Let me make sure I'm not in danger. And then once you do that, now you're hooked into the television. And unfortunately, we're... A lot of times it's telling you you're in danger if you're watching the news channel, too. Oh, that's actually a very good point. I wasn't even trying to go that way, but that's a, <laughs> that's a very good point. If you yeah. if you watch Fox News or watch Alex Jones, then the world's going to end tomorrow, and the globalists are going to nuke the entire world. But um, anyway, I always like just joshing with Alex Jones a little bit because his um, his broadcast is, is a lot of it based on fear, and that's what we're trying to get trying to get out of here. I mean, fear does motivate, like Jacob says. You know, fear motivates, um, tension motivates, pressure motivates, but that's not what kind of environment we're trying to create here. We're trying to create a nice, relaxed atmosphere for you to learn, share knowledge, and try to change your perspective on life and hopefully influence some other people into thinking in a, in a similar manner because we believe that this is the, the proper state of consciousness for the human species and not a, um, not a state of um, perpetuating fear or perpetuating doom and dread. So anyway, well, fear, fear is going to be there whether you want it to be or not. It's right. embracing it and, and morphing it into love as best you can, and mm-hmm. and you know that's that's all you can do, right? That's it. That's it. Just change your frequency, change your vibration, and not to sound too hippy dippy, but. Just the facts of the matter, everybody. I mean, you listen, listen to a physicist talk about how we need to, to shift from fear to love, and that's the only way that we're going to get out of this stuff. So, um, the, And one of the best ways to do it is to interact with, um, with your fellow humans and, and have that, uh, have that um, biological feedback that you get from interacting with somebody. Uh, give somebody a hug. You just feel the energy difference that you feel when you give somebody a hug. So. It's a little difficult to exercise compassion on a television screen. Oh, very nice. Well played. Okay, so now let's um let's shift gears. We got about fifteen minutes, so this should be enough time for us. 
and then we can get into whatever you want to talk about. If you want to talk about the Ukraine, we can butcher that. But um, the reason I had uh, my friend Jacob on is that um, he is, I don't want to say an advocate, but um, he is a very informed Bitcoin user and has talked about the, the differences of um, cryptocurrencies in general as opposed to fiat currencies. And the reason that I had him call in is that he was telling me the other night that there were some signs showing Mt. Gox that uh, – and for those of you that don't know, Mt. Gox or as Josh likes to call it, Magic the Gathering Online Exchange, which is what it was. Um, Mt. Gox was actually created in order for people to trade um, Magic the Gathering cards, and then it morphed into a Bitcoin exchange. So now – all right, you're up to speed a little bit. So Mt. Gox was one of the largest Bitcoin um, sites for trading, buying and selling, and investing of Bitcoins. And what happened to them is that they had to file bankruptcy because they found that they were I, – I don't know exactly the reason because I've seen a couple of different uh, scenarios. But from what I understand, um, stolen Bitcoins upwards of $200 million. Jacob, is that right? Well, yeah, it, the number that I the numbers I've been hearing in Bitcoin were 750k, and I, now I'm hearing up to 850k in Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. It's it's you know it's it keeps fluctuating and growing, and, sure. and I don't know if we'll ever really know uh, uh, <laughs> because that's how irresponsible they were as far as accounting for themselves. Oh wow. And and that's that's the big issue with Mt. Gox. And just to backtrack, I I wouldn't say I'm a frequent user of Bitcoin. I would say actually that I'm just an advocate. I'm just an advocate for Bitcoin. And okay. and if nothing more than informed by people who are frequent users and uh, through aff affiliations and connections that I've made and some good friends, they keep me informed on it. And I I think people have been sort of aware of Mt. Gox's irresponsibility, uh, irresponsibility for almost a year, maybe, you know, if slightly longer, but ar around there, around a year, people started raising questions about their accounting issues and really just them being transparent. Is that, uh, is that from is that from them having their temporary shutdowns like every you know six or eight months that they would have a day where they would just basically freeze accounts and then open it back up in a couple of days saying that they were working on some glitches or something. Well, what what they were what they have been claiming is that they've been putting all these bitcoins into cold storage. And the questions were, you know, well, well where are you keeping all these? And if you're not familiar with cold storage, it's just simply taking a bitcoin from the uh the internet world or from the online world and just storing it offline. So via a hard drive or just putting your uh, wallet information on a hard drive and storing it. You so know. kind of like the federal reserve and the, and the gold for the Germans. It's just, it's a, it's in a safe place. You can look at it. It's fine. Exactly. And that's sort of what we're getting at is, is the main, the main issue. And this, this is sort of, if you've been paying attention to this story in alternative media, you're, this is what you're going to be hearing from people. I, uh, like to listen to a gentleman, and I'm going to butcher his name, Andreas Andapanopoulos. I can't say his last name. It's, it's Greek and complicated, but you should look him up. And he's from uh, blockchain.info. Okay. They're sort of the opposite of what Mt. Gox is. Mt. Gox, what they were doing was they were taking co uh, custodian control. They were custodians of, of the Bitcoins that people were putting there. So when you're putting your Bitcoin or utilizing Mt. Gox as an exchange, you were giving them custodial control of your, of your Bitcoin, of your, you're giving them your keys, which is the most thing that you need to, which is the thing you need to stress most to people is to if utilize a um, exchange that lets you keep control of your keys so that you can retain your own ownership of your Bitcoin. And that's, that's, Essentially, what people who are using Mt. Gox were doing were saying, hey, even though I am utilizing Bitcoin and one of the major, if not the major advantage of Bitcoin is, it, is that it is not a centralized currency, mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to give you guys, go ahead and give you 
you know, a centralized control. And so in the same way that we sort of learned about Bitcoin not being about drugs via the Silk Road, sure. we're, we're now learning uh, that Bitcoin is not about centralization. Mm-hmm. And I'm just sort of mirroring some of these points that, you know, Andreas has made, but it's, it's so true. And, and, and that's hopefully moving forward. You know, that's what people will figure out about Bitcoin and understand more about Bitcoin. And the more instances like Silk Road and Mt. Gox that Bitcoin can endure, the more validated it will become. No, and- I, I would I would 100 percent agree because we've seen um, we've seen the currency take a, a huge hit um, even in the last week and a half. Right. And then and then rebound. And so it, it does show you the elasticity of the actual currency itself. And. Typically, you know, currencies do need to be elastic so they can, you know, they can expand in size as far as their, you know, their actual, I guess, um, with some volume that they actually have in, in circulation. But they also need to be able to fluctuate depending on demand. And you've seen that the demand for Bitcoin, as much as we've had these hiccups with all of these, you know, specific outlets, it's it's still come back and it's still, you know, a relatively... Um, I would say it's still a relatively viable means of exchange um, on the internet. Yeah, it's. I'd say it's the, the exchange. The, the value in Bitcoin, unlike a fiat currency, you know, our value in any currency is is given by its demand and its supply. And the thing that we know about Bitcoin is that its supply is determined by by mathematical equations that are solved by computers so it's very objective mm-hmm. that's a very objective supply and it's going to run out you know in you know 20 40 or whenever it you know whenever the supply is exhausted it's mm-hmm. exhausted uh unlike you know it's it's so we understand how it's created so how it's created kind of determines its value unlike a fiat where it's created just simply by turning on a printing press essentially mm-hmm. and so the other way is how it works. So it's value values and how it's transmitted and, and Bitcoin is transmitted with great ease and as long as, you know, there there is electricity and the interwebs and all of that, there's it's sure. it's the most valuable way of of transmitting currency uh that's that fits into this crux because of the sort of the, the blockchain technology. Um, do you, do you see Bitcoin being the, the, uh, the champion of the cryptocurrencies or do you think that there are a couple of hiccups with Bitcoin as far as, you know, obviously we got the blockchain issue um, with Mt. Gox as far as holding um, physical Bitcoins, but, do you do you see this as being the the currency that will be the trial balloon, or do you see this as morphing into something? You know, obviously, when you have a a, a first to the marketplace, yep. typically the first to the market will will um, somehow find a way to succeed and thrive. Yep. Do you see this with Bitcoin, or do you see us going with something else uh, in the future? Maybe say a Litecoin or something like that. I say the more the merrier. I see Bitcoin as being still the strongest player currently. Mm-hmm. Um, I find, you know, arguing over which is going to be, who knows? Who knows what the, that's for the market to decide. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, the, the most important thing is that there is a currency like these cryptocurrencies out there that uh, utilize this kind of technology and are decentralized and from a humanitarian perspective can provide financial services to countries that don't have them a or mm-hmm. B have completely failing. I mean, you see it in Cyprus and you can see it. The popularity of this is going to increase a lot more as these fiat currencies go under. And now what do we use as a means of exchange? Well, Here's a means of exchange that has a very low transaction cost and I can do global business with uh, at uh, remedial costs. Mm-hmm. So there's there's going to be great advantage to these to these currencies and and it appears as if Bitcoin's still the strongest player and like you said the first first one of the game 
does seem to rise to the top quite often. So if you're going by probability, which is how you pretty much live all of your life, then yeah, I'd say they're most probable looking at it right now. So, so moving forward with um with Bitcoin, ex- explain to the audience if 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 you got some people that aren't you know econ nerds like yourself and myself, or at least ha- have tried to look at the the justification for Bitcoin. Uh, explain the the essentialness of having something that's decentralized. Why is that such a a a, a big um, freedom tool for people that want to to get off of this? Um, basically um i guess neo-fascistic or neo-feudalistic uh, society that we live in currently why is it so essential to have something that's decentralized mount gax <laughs> well i didn't mean to go full circle but no i no, i but that's that's a good answer i mean well it's fine it's fine if you trust the person that's handling your and it's not that mount gox and not that centralization is is all together the evil or evil in any form. It's it's how it's audited. There you go. So how is the central entity, how are they, who are they accounting to and how are they audited and are they independently audited by people that you view as morally just and justifiable? So if that's occurring, then there's no problem. You know, it's there's no problem happening. So is it centralized, decentralized? Well, how you view banking? Are you, do you trust keeping your funds in the bank? Because that's then you're okay with centralization. Would you rather keep your funds under your bed? Then you're probably more into decentralization. Right. So, did you do you feel more comfortable with your value being retained on your person or elsewhere? Or do you trust others to hold it in a, in a custodial manner? That's pretty much as simply as I can explain it. There's the value or or, you know, to either. So it might become cumbersome for you to hold all of whatever you're holding uh, currency-wise on your on your person. So you may want to entrust it to someone else because perhaps they can uh, protect it better than you can or store it more feasibly than you can. You know that the government's got more guns than we do, right? So they can definitely protect us. Right, right. <laughs> I, I'm viewing this from, I try to imagine the government not being in existence. So this, Wouldn't that be nice? All right. So I'm reimagining a world where that, that doesn't exist. And so I'm sort of thinking to myself, well, perhaps if I trusted the, the entity and I trusted the entity that was auditing them, then perhaps I might be okay with, you know, a centralized person being a custodian of some of my finances, but... Ultimately, yeah, you want to keep as much as you can in your ownership. Otherwise, be willing to accept the risk that comes associated with the other, with the alternative. Right, and it's it's the exact adage that I've said here many times that, you know, people have this fictitious idea that the money that they put in the bank is actually their money. <laughs> and it, it actually isn't. It's uh, their only they're only liable for 10% of whatever they have out in loans. So the money that you put in pretty much is is extinguished or expunged almost instantaneously. As soon as you put that money in, it's going towards some other transaction. So your money is not there, people. It is not guaranteed. And believe me, if there's a run on the bank, the FDI will just say, okay, um, we don't know where any of the money is. So good luck, everybody. So I guess that would be I, I guess I'm an advocate for decentralization in that aspect to to have enough in your in your persons to to be able to cover all the things that you need um in the interim in a short period before if you did ever have something that like what happened in Cyprus where they had a bail in and a bank run and all kinds of nastiness. So but uh, anyway we got a got about a minute left, man. Anything else you wanted to uh, to add to the cryptocurrency discussion before we uh, before we sign off? Uh, or just uh, or just currencies in general. No, I, I think we did a pretty solid job of covering that. Uh, I, I I don't have a whole lot more to say. I, I'd say that if you do have cryptocurrencies, just like you treat any other currency, put some into cold storage yourself. Uh, learn from Mount Gox's uh, sort of shifty nature, and and it appears like those individuals will be 
jailed by Japan's, you know, governing forces once they sort all this through. So there will be justice for Mount Gox, and that's sort of what seems to be the general consensus out there. Cool. Maybe I'll get my .08 bit back. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you so much for Jacob Yannicky for joining me on the show for um, for his rundown on Bitcoin. As always, enjoy the conversation, man. Thank you so much for joining us today and this morning, waking up um, to to have an intellectual conversation about some some technology that's out there. So thanks for listening, everybody. Remember, get a friend, get informed, and get involved. Share the message, share the knowledge, and share the love. Hopefully, we can get around. Take care. Everybody.